Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. Remember, in a desert, there were no venture capital in Israel. There was no sources of funding. So coming up with those numbers as small as they are was a big thing in terms of encouraging entrepreneurs, in terms of signaling to the market that the Israeli government is serious about it. It's not something that we're just, you know, we're just talking about. We're actually willing to spend money on. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the State of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and, of course, their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of interviewing a successful entrepreneur like we normally do, we are going to instead look at the culture that has helped facilitate massive growth in the number of startups in Israel, specifically by the very active role that government plays in developing these startups, aside from the army, of course. To give you a sense of why Israel is called the startup nation, consider this. Between 1999 and 2004, there were 10,185 startups born in Israel. Of those, 2.6%, or approximately 200 companies, currently earn over $100 million per year. And since the 80s, over 250 Israeli companies have gone public. But there's a very interesting phenomenon. In 1993, the Israeli government launched something called Yozma, which means initiative in Hebrew, and invested $80 million in new venture capital funds that targeted Israeli startups. More importantly, Yozma offered insurance to cover 80% of the downside risk in order to attract foreign investors. And boy, did that work. Venture capital investing in Israel went from $58 million in the 90s to over $6.5 billion in 2018. Yozma has been called by a 2010 OECD report, quote, the most successful and original program in Israel's relatively long history of innovation policy. And today, many leading multinational conglomerates, including Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Deutsche Telekom, Bosch, and 350 others, have research centers in Israel. The X factor in this wild and successful growth Many say it's the office of the chief scientist of Israel, an official office in the government whose job it is to help incubate a culture of innovation and global success for Israeli startups. We're very happy today to have with us Avi Hasson, the former chief scientist of the Ministry of Economy uh, in the state of Israel. And uh, first of all, Avi, thank you very much for joining us today. I know that you're a busy person with your, your new fund and all the things that... that uh, that you, you're doing. And so I really do appreciate you joining us on the show today and, and sharing with us uh, some of your experiences. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Our pleasure. So this is a little different than a typical uh, show. Usually um, we're, we're interviewing entrepreneurs, people who are building or have built successful businesses in Israel. And the opportunity arose uh, through one of our associate producers to, uh, uh, to interview and to really get the perspective on the other side of the table of either investors or government and, and their efforts to 
I really create the startup nation, which is uh, what we focus on here. So first, let's talk a little bit about, your, about you and about your, your personal history. Uh, where were you born? So I was born in Israel, uh, in a little town near Tel Aviv called Cholon, which, which is probably uh, where I spent most of my uh, early years, even though uh, I had the chance to live three times outside of Israel. One of them was during my childhood. That was in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. Wow. Uh, How old were you when you did that? I was six years old. And, was, and why did you go? My parents, basically, my father was uh, an emissary of the Jewish agency. Uh, so he was helping people come from Argentina to Israel. This was an, a very interesting time in Argentina. This is uh, the late 70s. So uh, the junta, the military regime there, it was, it was quite a, an interesting time. So you remember it? I, I remember it very, very well. Of course, for, uh, as a child, uh, the most interesting experience was the 1978 uh, World Cup. Argentina hosting the tournament and winning it. So that was probably the strongest. Uh, World Cup is a big deal here. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Soccer, football. There we go. So you, you grew up in Cholon and you ultimately went to the army. I did, yes. So I, uh, I actually um, uh, had a chance to uh, start my studies in the university before going to the army. Uh, and then I joined... Uh, Atuda. No, not Atuda, not Atuda. I wasn't part of Atuda, so I, I, I actually stopped, I, I quit my, my uh, college studies and, and went to, uh, well, we never said the number at the time, but now it's uh, well known as Unit 8200. Got it. What did you, uh, what did you study? So I, at the time I studied uh, math and computer science. Uh, later on I studied something completely different, but, uh, but I, was, I was a techie at that at, at young age. You were hoping to build a career in, in technology, I guess. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say it was as uh, concrete at the time. Um, I really joined 8200 uh, not really knowing where I'm going. It was very secretive at the time. Uh, uh, very few people actually. It was a, a much smaller unit than it is today. But I spent five years there and it was probably the formative years of my life. So definitely uh, a lot of what I've, what I've gained both in experience and work patterns and values came from that time. I spent five years uh, in the unit in, in different roles. And I think the, the responsibility assigned to people at, at a young age is, is really amazing. So you were, you were 20 years old when you yeah, joined was, the unit? I was 18, obviously. 18? Yeah. And you were actually an officer? I, I, w I became an officer pretty soon after I, I was drafted. And as an officer, what kind of responsibility do you have at, at, at that so, very young age? Yeah, so I, I'm sure you understand I can't share exactly uh, what my daily life was, but, but, but in general, I think uh, the reality is that, uh, that you're presented with impossible to solve problems. Uh, you're expected to solve them in a very short time because many times it's life and death uh, decisions, so it's not just waiting for a new product. It's something that is really needed. Um, very little resources are given to you in terms of budget or manpower, and, and, and you know the only advice you get is good luck, <laughs> uh, which is really really how the system works. So uh, I think the, the, uh, the Israeli army in general is not managed by the generals; it's managed by the, the younger officers, the, the leaders in the field, which are expected to solve problems on their own, and commended for that whether they succeed or not. And they're trained to make decisions in the field on their own. Absolutely. So they're selected, filtered, and trained to do that. But more importantly than that, the culture in the organization is such that encourages taking those risks and coming up with solutions that may be 
bold or unorthodox, but from the system point of view, you know, make, make, us, make us better. And as long as you debrief and learn from your mistakes, uh, you can do it better next time. 8200 uh, is a unit, obviously it's a very famous unit uh, now in the army. It's hard to, to hide the number. Um, on the show, we've had many entrepreneurs who have graduated that unit, and we've heard many times that the culture is that these, entre- these, these soldiers, it really just, it's almost expected that you consider launching a startup. Uh, it's just the way that, that they, uh, they sort of grow up in that, in that unit. Have you ever considered that, starting your own, your own startup? Yeah, so n- not personally, actually. I think at a very young age, I realized that being an entrepreneur is not my, uh, my destiny. Uh, having said that, uh, many times through my career, I became an intrapreneur. So coming into a system which already existed, a company or a government entity, and then making a lot of, uh, a lot of balagan, what we call a lot of mess or chaos, hopefully constructive one in challenging, uh, you know, current ways of thought and also uh, leading a lot of change in strategy and, and organization and so on. Uh, but, but you have to understand that uh, the entrepreneurship culture you talk about is the result, I would say, of the last two decades. And nowadays, uh, you can really find generations of entrepreneurs coming out of the unit. But at the early 90s, which is when I left, uh, or left the unit and joined the high tech, it was pretty novel. The whole high tech scene was just, we're just starting out. Uh, there were much fewer startups uh, than there are today. So it was a different environment. I want to get back to, back to that in a minute. But you then left 8200. You joined the private sector. You worked for a couple of a different uh, telecom and, and high-tech companies in Israel. So I spent about a decade in, in, in telecommunication, in communication technology companies, basically doing uh, a, a, any, any role you could think about, uh, you know, from system engineering to business development, product marketing, uh, executive roles, and so on. And then at, uh, really at, uh, at, at the turn of the, of the century, or the millennium, I should say, I, uh, I was approached by a, a top-tier uh, leading venture capital firm in Israel called Gemini, um, to join, to join them. And I, and I decided to move from operational roles to venture capital, which was a huge change, I must say. It's a totally different DNA. What made you make that change? Um, I, I must say, you know, in hindsight, I'm not, I'm not sure I fully understood uh, what I'm doing. Uh, the two main motivation is, uh, the first one was the people. So Gemini was formed by a really a legendary person, Israeli high tech called Ed Milavsky, uh, which, which was the first in many things. Uh, and I wanted to work with him. And the second thing which really proved to be right was that I said, uh, this is going to be very interesting. So unlike the operational role where you focused on one product, one sector, one company, this gave me an opportunity to really go much broader, something I did later on even more as a chief scientist, uh, and look at different sectors, uh, see companies in different stages of their lives. So having that uh, a broader look, I thought w- would be very interesting. And also as a venture capitalist, you touch all the different aspects of a company. So when, when, you're, when you work for a company, regardless of what your role, even when you're a CEO, uh, you really see certain aspects of a company. When you're a venture capitalist, you have to analyze and work with R&D, with finance, with marketing, with all the different parts of the company, and that, that creates an interest. So I ended up spending 10 years there. And then became chief scientist. And then became chief scientist. How did that come about? So in my case, yeah, in my, in my case, it was, uh, I, I, I think I decided, you know, probably at a younger age than I would admit that I want to do 
I, I want to do a, a public role or do some public service. So you actually wanted to enter the public sector and, and be a public servant? Not necessarily in government, by the way. I was never working in government necessarily, but I think I was for uh, over 20 years uh, a, a good, successful citizen of the high-tech nation in Israel, and maybe we'll get to that because I think Israel does have two, you know, two nations or two economies. So for 20 years or so, I was uh, very happily living in the high-tech nation and, and being a successful citizen. And I thought I want to I wanna do something on, uh, on the other end. Um, and I shared, by the way, I shared that, uh, that desire with my partners. I thought it's, uh, uh, it's important for them to know that. And then actually I was, I was working for Gemini in Boston. So I spent, uh, I spent some time in Boston working for, uh, for the fund. But before going there, I, I shared that desire and I, and I, I made it a habit to uh, make a few meetings in Israel learning the different sides of the public sector. And again, it's not just government. You can add government and education, NGOs, uh, all the different potential roles that I could do, trying to learn more about what does it mean to be, you know, any of those, of those positions. But actually becoming the chief scientist, I guess it's not an application form that you can download online. <laughs> so, so how did you get from, not at all. you know, yes. uh, that's actually a nice story. So, uh, so one of the meetings uh, I, I did was with then, uh, a member of the Knesset, uh, Israeli parliament, called Yohanan Plesner. Today he's the president of the uh, Israel uh, Institute for Democracy, or maybe that's not uh, the right term in English. Uh, it was a, a great meeting, actually. It was a very successful meeting because within, I think, less than two hours, it became evident to me that I'm not going into politics. Uh, based on what I heard from Yohanan. All in was, two hours? Uh, it was, <laughs> and by the way, that's a very good meeting, right? I think... Uh, very efficient, didn't take me long to understand uh, that, that I wasn't cut for that and I don't want to do that. Um, the meeting obviously was in Israel and I, and I went back to Boston. The, the connection was done through a joint friend, which is uh, the CEO of Waze, Noam Bardin. Um, so he's a very good friend of, of uh, Yohanan and he made the introduction. And then four months later, I was actually in New York at the time um, and I remember getting a text message from uh, Noam saying, I'm sitting here with Yohanan, and he's, he tells me that the position of chief, chief scientist is about to be, you know, to be available, and are you, do you think that's something that could be interesting for you? And I took 24 hours to think about it, quite, and then I said, sure. <laughs> and it was interesting because I did all the, um, the process, if you'd like, cross-Atlantic, so I had to come from Boston to Israel a couple of times to, to be interviewed and go through the committees and all the formal processes, and then... Uh, September, I was announced that I, uh, that I got the job and, and we came back to Israel and I started uh, January 1st, I started. How long's a term for a typical chief scientist? The, the term is six years. Uh, I did six and a half years just to uh, enable a, a better transition. Uh, but yeah, it's quite, quite significant. Now, you mentioned earlier, um, obviously given your position as, as chief scientist, you have unique insights into how the country works and, and certainly the role of government in, uh, in helping the country uh, grow and, and develop. Uh, let's go back a little bit and, and, and focus on what happened in the Israeli economy from, let's say, the, early, the, the late 80s, early 90s until the late 90s, early, you know, early part of the millennium. What happened to flip the economy from being very concentrated to a couple of high-tech companies to today, which is, you know, so many startups. 
So, so actually, I think you have to go back even a little earlier, in, at least in terms of what the Israeli government uh, have created. Obviously, that later was joined by things that happened globally or w within Israel. But uh, in the very early 70s, actually even in the late 60s, you find the seeds of that. The, the Israeli government decides that they want to transform their economy to a more knowledge-based economy. Now, this is a time where you know, probably Israel's uh, best-known brands are Jaffa Oranges and maybe Diamonds and, I don't know, maybe the Uzi, right? <laughs> so Israel is certainly not considered a technology uh, powerhouse at the time. But the decision come across, and there's the understanding that government needs to play an active role in that transformation. So at the time, the office of the chief scientist is being created, actually. Uh, that, this is the, what year? This is, uh, so again, it depends to put one year. In government, by the way, the, it, it, between decision to execution to actual impact, you know, it takes five years, typically. So it, it <laughs> No wonder why you didn't want to go into politics. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it starts it start with a government committee, actually. Uh, um, but but, but I, I would say the early 1970s. So 1971, 72 is when the Office of the Chief Scientist is being set up. But it grows in, in budget and impact. Uh, later on. Now, again, this is remarkable in at least three different dimensions. The first, as I said, Israel doesn't have a, a technology, uh, you know, center or, or or forces. Even though, and and maybe not all, all your listeners are aware of that, the the values of science and technology and innovation are really based and embedded in 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 Israel even before the uh, creation of our modern state. You know, Technion is created before. Uh, Hebrew University and so on, Weizmann Institute, so really something that was there, but mostly in science. Um, so it's remarkable, again, that, 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 that thought at a very early on. Number two, these are very early days in general in the world. You don't find a lot of innovation agencies, innovation policy out there, and, and a lot of what the chief scientists did in the early days had to be thought about independently. You couldn't just go, oh, let's, let's see what other countries are doing and do the same. Nobody was doing match uh, uh, at, at the time. Um, so it was really, really innovative. And I, I would say the third thing, which is miraculous, is that um, 45 years have passed. And, and that, you know, that innovation agency is still, I would claim, one of the best in the world. And a lot of the pillars and values and foundations that were created back then are still in place, even though probably everything in Israel has changed uh, around us. So the... The chief scientific, scientist office was created uh, in the early 70s, and it still took 25 years until the high-tech part of the sector of the economy kind yeah, of absolutely. exploded. So in, ter in terms of government policies, there are probably, and I really try to fast forward that, but probably two waves of policy which really turned up to be fundamental. So one, the first one is in the late 70s. So the late 70s, uh, two main programs are created, and they're reflective, again, of many other programs to, to follow. One is the, the R&D fund still in place, which basically meant that Israeli government is supporting funding, um, R&D projects, mostly companies. So we're not talking about, about uh, uh, universities. I, you mentioned that in the introduction, that the chief scientist reports the Ministry of Economy and Industry, not to the Ministry of Science and Technology. And it's by no coincidence. That's interesting. It's because the, the main purpose from the beginning was how can we transform intellectual property, science, technology, and innovation to economic impact and values and, and, and employment and export and so on. Uh, so that was there from the beginning. So R&D fund comes, comes to place. And again, a lot of the 
methods of operations and values are created then. How big was the fund? So the fund was really, really small at the time, uh, right? My budget was around $500 million annually. At the time, it was probably less than 10% of that. Uh, but remember, in a desert, there were no venture capital in Israel. There was no sources of funding. So coming up with those numbers as small as they are was a big thing in terms of encouraging entrepreneurs, in terms of signaling to the market that the Israeli government is serious about it. It's not something that we're just, you know, we're just talking about. We're actually willing to spend money on. And the second thing was the creation of the Bird Foundation, the Binational Industrial R&D Fund, really the, uh, you know, the forefather of all international collaborations. So on, on the very early days, government is saying, we want to connect Israeli technology to the world. The first country was the US, but when I left, there were 70 such bilateral agreements with countries worldwide, probably there are more uh, uh, right now. Uh, Bird was the first one. By the way, Ed Milavsky, which I mentioned as my my mentor and manager in Gemini uh, was the, 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 the first uh, CEO or managing director of that fund for, for 13 years. So these were two programs that really kind of show, showed the way. And number one, we want to be an active player. Number two, we want to connect Israel to the world. What is the mandate, the legal mandate of the chief, chief scientist? Yeah, so from the beginning, again, uh, Israel did a few very smart things about setting this up. But again, for you and your listeners, don't think all parts of the Israeli government is, uh, are uh, as efficient, friendly, and, uh, and effective as this one. It's, it, I really think it's... Uh, you mean there's nothing wrong with have, when you get your license, uh, your driver's <laughs> license, you have to have blood taken and, uh, you yeah. know... And, and pray. And pray. <laughs> and pray. But, but I guess, you know, being the land of miracles, this is uh, one miracle that, that happened. They've been miraculous uh, despite the government. Probably, right? probably. So, from the, so a few things, you know, were, were done right from the beginning and, and are still in place today. One is the idea of having one agency. In most countries, you don't find one agency dealing with all the responsibilities that were and are assigned to the chief scientist, now the innovation authority. If you take the United States as an example, I'm not criticizing that, I'm just citing the differences. Uh, every department uh, you know, is responsible of each sector, for example. So DOE would deal with energy and DHS with Homeland Security and NIH and there really many probably does, and I didn't even get to the state level and see the level, obviously. In Israel, it was from the beginning, one agency with a very, very broad responsibility of dealing both with policy and funding, dealing with every possible sector of technology from agri-tech to cyber, from healthcare to internet and so on. Um, having a one-stop shop, if you'd like, for companies, researchers to go to and that created a lot of efficiencies. It also created uh, a very unique culture, which was uh, nurtured over the years. It created a relatively large uh, independence and, and a, and a non-political environment within government, which is also uh, kind of unique. So that one agency was important. And probably the most important thing, if I need to choose one, is the uh, within the DNA of the chief scientist exists the, the concept of public-private partnership. Even before this became such a, a cliche, uh, in, in, in any policy, I would say, in governments. From, from the early setup, public-private part, partnership is part of the Office of the Chief Scientist. And it means a lot of things, but if I need to choose one, it basically means let everybody do what they do best. M you know, Mr. Government, don't try to replace the private sector in what they know better than you, and focus on the things where nobody else is going to do it 
or you can do it better than the private sector. And I can go into details. But that notion was really very effective because it positioned the government as an enabler, a facilitator, not, not someone who's trying to replace or push the, the private sector, but really trying to work with the private sector. And just one data point, you know, which I would say probably is the very reflective of the success of that policy, is the fact that on the one hand, Israel leads the world in our national expenditure on R&D. We spend on research, civilian research and development, I'm excluding defense, uh, more than any other country, of course, as a percentage of our GDP, which is how you normalize between country. 4.2% of Israel's GDP is spent on civilian R&D uh, every year. That's an extremely high number. It's you know, more than double of the OECD average. That's in the private sector. Uh, and, that, and my next point, so that, that's, on, that's on everybody's, right? Sp uh, national expenditure. Okay. The second point I want to make is that the government's share in that investment is the lowest of all OECD countries. It's actually extremely low, very, very low. This was not the case in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, but it was embedded in the policies and in, in, in everything we did in the government was really try to focus on how can we incentivize the private sector to increase their investments in R&D, how can we create whatever is needed in terms of environment, infrastructure, risk sharing, and so on, so that private sector would put more. And the numbers reflect that success. So when you were chief scientist, to give some, some examples, you mentioned that you had a budget of $500 million a year. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is very low compared to the, if you take, for example, just as an example, right? Take a VC investments in Israel, they're over $5 billion every year. And I'm just thinking VC investments. So it's, it's $500 million, what do you do with it? What, to do what? <laughs> Yeah, so, so, you know, the, the chief scientist is really a unique, uh, I, I, I used to say it's the best job in the government, which of course has two parts of the sentence. It's in the government, so don't get excited. <laughs> but within that environment, it's the best job. It's the best job because um, you're very independent and non-political. You're considered consensus, that's important. Israel has a very fragmented political environment. Uh, but when it comes to high tech and, and the chief scientist, there's consensus on all parts of the house that this is a good thing that we should, we, I, I reported to seven different ministers in my term. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> From six different parties. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> which of course made life interesting. But on the positive side, um, it didn't really matter because you know, wherever you go, now make no mistake, you have to fight for your budget and it's a very hard battle to fight, but you're considered as a good investment, as something which is someone who's positive, someone who's beyond politics, win, when I brought the legislation of creating the Israel Innovation Authority, it was a unanimous vote. The, n nothing in the Knesset is unanimous, okay? Nothing. And yet this was a unanimous vote for the legislation. Wow. Uh, which really reflected the, you know, the great support that, that uh, is. And by the way, this is not because of my blue eyes and I don't have blue eyes. It's because high tech uh, contributes 50% of Israel's export. So it's strategic to the economy and people get that. They understand that. And the chief scientist is considered as someone who, even if we don't understand exactly what they do, they're probably doing something good because, because it's working. Uh, another positive part was really the budget. You have a significant budget and you have a relatively high flexibility in how you spend it. So most big budgets in the government are not flexible. You know, they're either for salaries or things that were already decided upon. And here, most of the budget is actually up to uh, annual distribution. So it's um, discretionary, discretionary, as opposed to mandatory. That, that, right? that was mandatory exactly the word I, I was looking for. Yeah, thank you, thank you for your help. Now, having said that, 
you have to make hard choices. Uh, we supported about 2,000 companies every year. Um, that seems like a large number, but there were about six times more demand than the budget I had to give. So $6 competing for every dollar I have to give, which meant decisions need to be taken and they hopefully need to be taken in a professional way. Um, remember, uh, the chief scientist really supports such a vast, uh, not just number, but even variety of different types of projects from infrastructure to uh, specific projects from young entrepreneurs, even before they set up companies to the largest multinationals in Israel. It's a very, very broad decision-making process in many dimensions because you really need to decide on that. And a lot of what we did in creating the Innovation Authority was to put more structure into that different, I think, than it was in the office of the chief scientist. Now, I have to say that in the beginning, things were easier. Um, I'm not talking about my term. I'm talking about the early days. They were easier because there was, a, as I said, a big decision on supporting R&D. And from there, and I'm not saying, again, I'm saying that in praise, not in criticism, pretty much everything you did was good. So if you supported R&D project, there was positive outcome for that. Government was such a significant player uh, that pretty much everything you did yielded positive, positive results. In a situation where the ecosystem is more mature, when you're a very small player, you're less than 5% of the overall funding of the market, you really need to think hard about where do you want to spend your dollars? What should you focus on? what is more important and how you do that. Uh, so I think the system of the, of the Office of the Chief Scientist is a really a very professional one um, in terms of making those decisions. How did you measure success <laughs> as Chief Scientist? I mean, you yeah, create jobs, right? You create jobs. Right. Um, many companies will exit and create headlines and tax revenues. I suspect those are not necessarily the metrics that you were looking at. So that's, that's a great question. And, and actually, um, so, so coming from the private sector, I was, uh, I was looking for those. Um, I was looking for a lot of things, by the way. I can tell a lot of funny stories about, you know, coming from the private network and looking for a lot of things which I thought were essential and yet didn't exist uh, within the office. This was one of them. You know, what are your KPIs? Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you drive strategy based on what you do well and what you want to do? The, um, you know, trying to look for sources of information on that, it was very hard. There was the R&D law. R&D law was already legislated in 1984, so it was pretty old, but it, gave, it really gave a very, uh, a very broad definition of what are the goals. Um, so we really think, talking about things like export and job creation and growth, uh, very, very broad way. Uh, there was also very little help from the outside. As I said, if, when we try to go to the OECD or the EU or our counterparts in other countries, very few of them had those metrics um, that, that, we could, that we could draw from. So we really needed to do it by our own. So one of the first things I did was actually to build a strategy and economic research unit within the office of the chief scientist, which became very, very meaningful uh, later on. And we tried to came up with those metrics and those metrics vary because sometimes they're, they're uh, on a certain program, and I'll give, I'll give an example, and sometimes they're on the overall operations trying to figure out how are we doing? I mean, are, are we doing okay? How's the, how's the Israeli high-tech doing, by the way? There's even no measurement for that. Uh, but also more specifically, us as an organization, what should we be targeting for and, and are we doing our job? Uh, so we try to create that, again, that, that DNA and culture of setting up metrics whenever a new program was set up and then coming up and checking up. Some things 
are never quantitatively, and, and then we use uh, things similar to companies, you know, talking to our customers. But the chief scientists are very interesting customers because we give them money. We right. Don't, we don't charge them money. Uh, and yet they are our customers. So um, we're trying to talk to them, to the companies, to the researchers, understand where are the gaps, the opportunities, what are we doing well, what are what should we be improving? And some things are very econometric or quantitatively and, and really trying to measure measure the impact of what we do. Um, so we did a few studies there and actually the, the, the result was, was staggering, very, very positive. It really showed that, for example, that every shekel or dollar works with all currencies uh, put through the chief scientists, return themselves to the economy, you know, five to seven times, sometimes 10 times. So it's a nice machine. Right? That's a very good ROI. Think about it. You, you have a machine where you put $1 on, on one side and you get $10 on the other side. Um, and, and it's not difficult to, uh, to explain, by the way, why, why that happens. But you always need to focus on your, on your general goals. So, so we try to set up those metrics um, and that culture of measurement and, and figuring out. And, and it turned up to be, um, you know, to, to be quite successful. Once you put that into the system, people get used to... Uh, using those metrics. So if I take one, one example, let's take our incubators program, the chief scientist incubators, um, almost 30 years in place, by the way. Um, one of the three iconic programs brought into uh, the Israeli ecosystem at the very early 90s. Uh, the other two, of course, being uh, Yozma, which created venture capital in Israel, and Magnet, which basically created industry academia collaboration all three chief scientist programs. So incubator program, I'm not sure how much time we have to get into, into that, uh, but basically uh, you know, supports the very, very early stage companies and, um, and the chief scientists create about 20 incubators spread out in all parts of the countries, really from the Golan Heights to uh, uh, near Eilat, um, in different sectors supporting that. It's interesting to note that even though they're called the chief scientist incubators, they're private companies for profit. Uh, the chief scientist doesn't choose the sectors of investment. Uh, we don't employ the people who work there. We don't even fund their operations. In the incubator program? Not at all. In the incubators. In the chief scientist incubators. Obviously, there right. are many incubators which are not part of the program. So why, did, why can we call them the chief scientist incubators? Because we do something nice. 85% of the funding needed for the companies within the incubators in their early stages is supported by the government. So the first half a million to two million dollars, if you want to get a sense of the money, 85 cents of each dollar come from the chief scientists, non-dilutive, which in human language means we don't take any equity. All the upside remains with the entrepreneurs. And the, so it's a grant? It's not exactly a grant. You could think about it as a conditional loan in the sense that that money, that money is given. Uh, if the company fails, and by the way, fails doesn't mean necessarily fails technologically. It could mean fails in the market. No harm done, you don't need to, it becomes a grant, that's okay. No personal guarantee, it's, it disappears. Absolutely, part of the game, and, um, and we can talk about later why even those companies sometimes are a great investment from a government perspective. Uh, if the company managed to generate revenues out of the technology funded by the chief scientist, they need to repay the grant through royalties of the sales, uh, but only until repayment. So again, no upside. It's an amazing loan if you think about it. You only paid back. Do you pay? Do you charge interest? At LIBOR interest. So you only paid back if you succeed, and there's very minor interest on that. It it, it it's really nice, right? It's and it's 85 cents on the on the dollar if you think about it. Uh, so, so what does that mean? That means that if I go ahead and, and raise, I need to raise a million dollars. Yeah. 850 can come from you. 
Yeah, within the incubator system. If you do it. it outside, 50% would come for us. Still nice. And by the way, you can get the 50% approval before you come up with the matching money. So you can go up in the world saying, I have a million dollars from the chief scientist to match your million dollars. If you give it to me, obviously, by the way, that funding doesn't only supply uh, leverage or matching, it also supplies the fact that someone looked into your technology and business plan, you know, approved it, thinks it makes sense that you're not just some crazy guy going up w- with an idea. So that, that's very significant for the early stage companies. And how many companies have you funded as a chief scientist? <laughs> so a thousand, I don't know, definitely over 10,000 companies. Wow. Um, I don't know the exact number. Remember, it's been in place for for many years, but but it's it's been quite significant, obviously. But... The point is not necessarily the dollar value of the significant, and this is really where the public-private partnership came into place, because I think from the early days, and certainly when I was chief scientist, it was a big part of what I did was, don't try to replace the private sector in what they do. If my dollar replace a venture capital or a bank dollar, that's a very stupid move to do. What I want to do is be in a situation where my dollar creates what is called additionality, my dollar will incentivize private sector to move more, to do more investment than they would have done without my investment. Now, there count, you know, I, I could give so many examples of that, uh, but I just want to make the point that this is definitely true in an early stage company where maybe it wouldn't come, you know, it wouldn't be created without the chief scientist money uh, because having that leverage risk sharing is something that is very, very meaningful in terms of the uh, uh, private investor. On that note, risk sharing, would the scientist, chief scientist, give a grant or an investment without a follow-on investment or no. a co-investment? So risk sharing was one of my mantras, really one of my top three mantras in, uh, uh, in everything we did, but both words are important. Okay, so first, let's talk about risk. Uh, in the corridors of the chief scientist, risk is a good word. Okay, when a project was presented as a risky one, that would increase the chances of getting funded. This is very different than a venture capital firm. Yeah, most, the, most of get scared away by that. Uh, they, yeah, they but, but we always it. thought that it's our job to do the heavy lifting. And, and again, I'll, I'll give an example why that, that makes sense. But the sharing is just as important. So even when we gave grants to universities, not companies, there was matching money coming from the universities themselves. Sometimes we'd be very generous with our funding, like the incubator example. Sometimes we'd go as low as 30% the government's share. But there's always sharing. That sharing, I think, is important. It creates alignment. It creates another professional entity around the table, uh, you know, looking at the project and supporting it. It's something which was really a, a big part of what we did. And I imagine the correlation between venture capital flows into Israel and chief scientist investment are probably very correlated. In other words, you help facilitate a lot of new fresh capital flowing into the country. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, you know, Yosma is the, the biggest example because Yosma really created venture capital. It really, it really made, it, um, made it happen. But even, even today, I think what we try to do is exactly that, is leverage, is try to help the venture capital with the things which are harder for them to do because they're high risk. Uh, and this could be early stage companies. It could be uh, high risk sectors, uh, you know, pharma, pharma as an example, biopharma, very, very risky, as you can imagine. And if you're starting up, that having the, the chief scientist funding is very significant. This concludes part one of my interview with Abi Chasson, the former chief scientist of Israel. Tune in for part two, 
Nabi and I will discuss other innovative strategies that the Israeli government used to make Israel the startup nation, fueling massive growth in the number of successful startups that were born under the chief scientist's leadership. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. No good startup in Israel is too big or too small. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.